Good morning, I'm Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president of the Cato Institute. It's also my pleasure to welcome you all here for our 36th annual monetary conference. I always say I'm not gonna talk about the weather because everyone does that, but when Jim Dorn said he was dreaming about a white monetary conference, it, it happened, your dream came true. But I'm glad you all got here safely, and I hope uh, those who are en route also arrived safely. You know, those of us who uh, wait to the last minute to do everything, uh, rationalize it by saying that procrastination is a feature, not a bug. Um, so when Jim asked me six months ago to, to speak, this, give, deliver the opening remarks this morning, I, of course, waited until last night to think about what I was going to say. And uh, that was fortunate because there were three things that happened uh, to me yesterday that tied into this conference. First was a, uh, an article I read in the Washington Post about the history of Redskins fans booing the team. And there were two quotes in the article. One was from the early 70s where I think it was the coach said, hey, they've paid their $7 for a ticket. They can boo if they want to. Uh, and then there was another quote from 2001 that said, hey, they paid their $65 for a ticket. You know, they can boo, boo if they want to, and we know the tickets are a lot more than $65 now. So there's obviously been a real increase in the price of NFL tickets, but we know a lot of inflation in there as well. Also, I was meeting with a generous sponsor of Cato yesterday, and uh, he asked me how I ended up you know, going from being an investment banker to the president of a think tank. And I told him a story similar to one I related at this conference last year that, you know, for me, it was more the call of duty. I feel really, really uh, grateful to have grown up in a relatively free country and had an opportunity to, uh, you know, achieve some semblance of the American dream. And I think it'll be a shameless legacy if we leave behind a country to future generations where uh, they're not as free as we were and they may not have the opportunity to realize their dreams because of the burdens of, of government. And so uh, it sounded very selfless, but I admitted to him that there actually was one component of, uh, maybe two components of self-interest in this because regardless of the fact that so many of us who are middle-aged and older um, have been on a pretty good trajectory of life, there are some things that the government could still do to, uh, to screw up our lives. One is to start a crazy war that could certainly have a destructive impact on us. But the other is, uh, is monetary policy. Um, you know, monetary policy isn't just important for the next generation, although it is. Uh, but it's perhaps, you know, the single area of government policy where a major mistake could screw up the rest of our lives. And uh, monetary policy has the potential to wipe out savings, which people have worked their entire lives to accumulate. So selfishly, I may have more at stake here, and we all may have more at stake in, uh, in the monetary realm than in any other policy areas on which Cato works. And that brings me to the third story yesterday. I received an email. When we send out you know, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of direct mail letters, I don't usually get email responses from those letters. But I received uh, one response yesterday from a, a gentleman who had received a solicitation from us. And uh, I think he was being critical of the Institute, but I took it as a compliment because he also highlighted the fact that of all the policy areas in which Cato operates, he uh, sees monetary policy as being the most important because there is the most scope for government mischief in the monetary arena. And uh, when I say he was being critical, I think he was saying, he was trying to communicate that 
you know, maybe you should stop doing all of this other stuff and really focus on monetary policy. And uh, I'm really proud of the, you know, the Institute. One of the things that brought me to Cato originally as a donor was the fact that, um, you know, monetary policy was, uh, was such a focus of the Institute. And, uh, you know, it's really almost since the inception of Cato, it's been an area of focus as Jim's long tenure and long stewardship of the monetary conference over 36 years can attest, and also the uh, significant uh, investment that my, uh, my predecessor, John Allison, engineered in uh, significantly augmenting our work in this area. And uh, it's actually quite appropriate because the insights of monetary policy are in many ways a core component of libertarianism. The miracle of the price system the unplanned order whereby billions of people peacefully coordinate their values and preferences, none of it would be possible without the framework of sound money. Everything else about the kind of free world that we want to build rests on the necessity of a well-functioning currency. In fact, the gentleman who sent this email to me yesterday had a great analogy. He said that if I controlled all the nutritional value of the food you, Peter Gettler, ate, you might be uh, free nominally free, but uh, I would be engineering how much energy you had, how much of different you know, nutrients and food groups you ingested, and even though you would be nominally free, you might not be able to uh, exercise that freedom in very good ways. And I thought that was a great analogy for, uh, for the money system, because so much of our commerce, so much of our economic activity is, uh, is dependent upon uh, the functioning of that, of that monetary system. So I don't like to, sometimes libertarians are accused of focusing on the negative, but I do find it truly frightening when you think about it, because we can all cite examples of individual injustices, and they're horrible, where the state has wrecked an innocent person's life. But in monetary policy, it's not individual injustices at stake. It's the well-being of our entire society and economy and everybody who operates in it. It's not an exaggeration to say that no government policy short of war, and we might even, I don't think would be melodramatic to say short of nuclear war, has more potential for destruction and havoc than government mismanagement of the monetary system. We got a scary glimpse of this 10 years ago, and that's what we're here to discuss today. The crisis of 2008 rocked the financial and monetary system. And to respond to it, the Federal Reserve and its counterparts around the world undertook drastic, unprecedented actions. And those actions didn't stop when the crisis passed. They're the foundation on which the past decade of recovery and economic growth have been built. And now we find ourselves in the position of trying to unwind those extraordinary policies so that we can have something like a return to uh, normalcy. Not necessarily the normalcy many of the, the people in this room would, uh, would envision in a perfect scenario, but normalcy nonetheless. It's an important time to rethink Fed policy and consider the reforms necessary to safeguard the purchasing power of money so that Redskins tickets don't continue to uh, go up you know, 10 times in nominal value every few, every few decades. Um, to free interest rates from government control and to enact legislation to limit the power of the Fed. As central banks around the world begin to exit their post-crisis unconventional monetary policies by gradually raising interest rates and unwinding their massive balance sheets, the public needs to understand how the Fed intends to do so and the implications for sound money, credit, and economic growth. 
One of the frustrations we often face is that advocates of free markets in the public eye, and certainly the public at large, so often ignore the central questions of monetary policy. Um, I was, was uh, thinking on the way in this morning of the scenes we saw uh, in the wake of Brett Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation, you know, crowds outside the Supreme Court banging on the on the doors, and it occurred to me that we never see such demonstrations in the wake of the appointment of a Fed government governor or Fed chair down Constitution Avenue at the Federal Reserve, even though the stakes uh, are at least as high. Um, so one of the things we aim to do at events like today's is to make these questions accessible and understandable to the general public. Today you'll get to hear some of the best minds in the field discuss the future of the dollar in a manner that we hope will be informative to longtime monetary policy experts, but also accessible to the informed layman. With so much at stake, this really is an area where we need to put the public on our side and actively participating in the debate. It can't be just a purely academic discussion when the wealth and well-being of everybody is on the line. I would like to thank, before we get started, uh, the George Edward Durrell Foundation. And uh, I don't see them yet, but Dave Durrell and his son John are to be with us today. And they've been generously sponsoring this event for, uh, for many years. And uh, we thank them very much for that. I thank Jim for his stewardship of this event over the, over the decades. Our entire team in the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives uh, for year in and year out, putting on a very important, consequential, and informative event. And also to all of the speakers who are here participating today. And of course, uh, I always mention the generous sponsors who are in attendance, who make Cato's work, not just in uh, the area of monetary policy, but uh, across the broad spectrum of, uh, of public policy possible. I should also say that you should have received on the way in uh, program for today, and there's also a schedule card. And uh, the schedule card overrides the program because there have been some changes since, uh, since this was printed. So uh, I'll yield the floor so that we can get going. It's my honor to introduce our keynote speaker for the conference. Claudio Borio is the head of the Monetary and Economic Department for the Bank of International Settlements, which is, of course, one of the pillars of the international monetary system. Um, I won't recite to you Dr. Borio's bio, which is in, uh, in the, in the uh, program, but I will point out one item that is in there, uh, that The Economist cited him as one of the most interesting monetary economists. And uh, all the monetary economists I know, at one time or another when making presentations, have engaged in self-deprecation reminding the audience that many people don't find monetary policy very interesting. So someone who could be cited as being very interesting in the, in the, uh, in the field is uh, certainly an accomplishment. When Ben Bernanke sought to implement a helicopter money policy, a term originally coined by Milton Friedman, and which he, of course, didn't intend as a compliment, Dr. Borio was one of the researchers who pointed out the inherent dangers in that approach. There is no such thing as a free lunch, and there's no such thing as free money from nothing. While price inflation was kept at bay through the convoluted measures that have been deployed over the last decade, the reality is that expanding the money supply is still inflationary. In the years ahead, that reality could come back to bite us with a vengeance, and Dr. Borio is one of the voices within the system that was sounding the alarm when these decisions were made a decade ago. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the stage, and please join me 
in uh, offering a warm welcome to Dr. Claudio Borio. Well, thank you. It's uh, a great pleasure and an honor for me to actually be back here. Um, can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, I was speaking from, I thought it was the other side uh, as, as a luncheon speaker. Um, and I would very much like to thank the organizers for their very, very kind invitation. Um, so let me, let me, let me start. Um, I think that few issues in economics have attracted as heated debates as the nature of money and its role in the economy. The recent academic macroeconomics uh, literature is an exception, and I would say it's a regrettable exception at that. Um, and even if a number of you in the audience, I would say, are a welcome exception to that exception. Today, I would like to resurrect an older tradition in which I grew up. I would like to go back to the basics of monetary economics and draw lessons for our understanding of core themes in this area, of the workings of our modern economies and of policy. The lessons concern in various ways the nexus between money, debt, trust, and central banking, hence the title of the, of the speech. Some points I will be making are really very well known and generally accepted. Others, I think, are more controversial. My focus will be on the monetary system defined as money plus, and this is important, plus the mechanisms to transfer it in order to execute transactions. I feel that these mechanisms have not received the attention they deserve in the academic literature, whether old or new. The question I will be posing is what does it take to secure a well-functioning monetary system, both with respect to its daily operations and its longer-run performance. I will necessarily be quite selective, especially in my presentation. I think the speech develops some of the arguments in, in much more detail, but not enough detail, I would say, because the coverage is pretty broad. Now, there are three takeaways from my analysis. The first is that two properties underpin a well-functioning monetary system. The first, which is rather technical, is the coincidence of the means of payment with the unit of account. The second, which is more intangible, but I think even more fundamental, is trust. A precondition is, is trust in the, that the object functioning as money will be generally accepted and that payments will be executed. But a well-functioning system requires much more. It requires trust in price and financial stability. And central banks have become a key pillar of the institutional technology to ensure that trust. Second point, a key concept to understand how the monetary system works is the elasticity of credit. That is the extent to which the system allows credit to expand. A high elasticity is actually essential for the system's day-to-day -day operations. But too high an elasticity, we can call it excess elasticity, can cause serious economic damage in the longer run. Now, in today's economy, which is generally blessed with price stability, maybe not as much as some of you would like, um, the most likely cause of damage is financial instability and banking crisis. And when banking crises take place, they threaten to undermine the payment system itself, so the core of the monetary system. The third takeaway is that as concepts, as concepts, price and financial stability 
are inexorably linked. Both embody trust in what that sustains the monetary system. But the underlying processes are different, so that there can be material tensions between the two in the short run. These tensions can disappear in the longer run, provided, provided appropriate monetary and financial arrangements are in place. Now, along the way, I will touch on several sub-themes, including things like the risk of overestimating the difference between money and debt, or credit, the non-viability of cryptocurrencies as money, and whether it is appropriate to think of the price level as the inverse of the price of money, to make a sharp distinction between relative and absolute price changes, and to regard money or monetary policy as neutral in the long run. So the structure of my speech, I will first of all discuss the elements of a well-functioning monetary system. I will then move on to discuss the, some of the key mechanisms that generate trust in its day-to-day -day operations. And then I will finally discuss the mechanisms to ensure trust in its longer-run operation, therefore price and financial stability. Now, at its most essential, a monetary system consists of a unit of account, a means of payment, and the mechanisms to transfer the means of payment and settle transactions, execute payments. The unit of account, we know, is the measure of value of all goods and services and financial assets. It is a purely abstract, immutable unit of measurement, such as like a meter. The means of payment is a generally accepted instrument that settles transactions or extinguishes obligations. Now, two points about this definition. First of all, there is no explicit reference to the third well-known function of money. That's the store of value. This is not because it is unimportant, far from it, and in fact, it will figure prominently in what follows, but because it is not, it is not a distinguishing feature of money. And more importantly, a means of payment must also, must also, be, must also be a store of value. So there is no need to refer to this function explicitly. And by the way, the modern literature has moved more and more to discuss the store of value function as opposed to the means of payment. Now, second, compared to the traditional focus on money, it is essential to extend the analysis to the payment mechanism. Excluding it is partly responsible for thinking of money purely as a convention as opposed to a social institution, supported by behavioral norms and legal and, operational, and legal and operational infrastructure. In fact, in today's economies, the volume of payments exceeds by thousands, I do mean thousands, of times GDP. These payments are mostly wholesale and for financial transactions. And in fact, there is a graph in the paper that shows you by how much they, they really exceed GDP. I was really very surprised the first time that I saw those numbers many, many, many years ago. Now, at the very least, the well-functioning monetary systems will have two properties. Um, the first one is that it will exploit the benefits of unifying a means of payment and the unit of account. The benefit of a means of payment is that it is effectively what allows the economy to function at all, and more specifically, that it is a highly efficient means of erasing the relationship between transacting parties that is making transactions final. If you like, it's, it's a way of getting rid of memory in, in, in our system, doing away with it. So the two parties can get on with their business without concerns about counterparty defaults. Now, the main benefit of a unit of account is that it is the simplest and most effective way of measuring relative prices, which greatly reduces the number of prices that need to be known. And the main benefit of unifying the two 
that is to have by convention, by convention, the price of money relative to the unit of account to be fixed at one, is that it greatly reduces the uncertainty of what the means of payment can buy. The residual uncertainty depends on unexpected changes in prices of goods and services relative to the means of payment, that is, in the value of money. So put differently, the price and the value of money are distinct, although they're often conflated, and I will come back to this later to sort of suggest why that may be relevant. Now, historically, we have seen cases in which the unit of account and the means of payment have not coincided. But this has arguably generally reflected limitations of the monetary system. Think, for instance, of the coexistence of a multiplicity of settlement media in underdeveloped economic systems, particularly in the early Middle Ages, or in fragmented monetary areas such as the Italian city-states. This also suggests that being a viable means of payment is a necessary condition to serve as a unit of account. I do not agree with many proposals through history to, to split the two, and I know that some of you in this audience would, would agree with me, like uh, Larry White. Now, the second property of a well-functioning monetary system is that it will enjoy the trust of participants. To be sure, trust that people will accept the corresponding instrument as the means of payment and that the transfer will be effective is absolutely necessary for the system to function at all. But a well-functioning monetary system requires much more than that. It requires trust that the value of the instrument will be stable in terms of goods and services. Fluctuations generate uncertainty. Trust that the value will not change strongly in one direction or the other. I am referring not just to inflation, which erodes the value of the means of payment, and deflation, which increases the value of the liabilities of debt generated in the monetary system. I'll come back to this later. But crucially, trust that there won't be outright defaults. Hence the reason why, as concepts, price and financial stability are joined at the hip. They amount to broken promises that undermine trust. It's true that if trust was perfect, there would be no need for settlement. And this might conceivably be possible in very tightly knit and very small groups. This would provide the assurance that obligations will be honored. But in a more complex society, generating the necessary trust is much more complicated. There is the need for strong and sophisticated institutions. Naturally, ensuring trust is a multifaceted task, including, not least, the underpinnings of a well-functioning state. But in what follows, in order to keep things manageable and tight, I will focus only on those trust-building institutions closest to the monetary aspects of the challenge. Now, let me now turn to the uh, mechanisms to ensure a well-functioning monetary system in its day-to-day -day operations. Two aspects, I think, are worth highlighting here. The first is the need for an elastic supply of the means of payment. And the second, the need for an elastic supply of credit more generally. The central bank's elastic supply of the means of payment is essential, essential to ensure that transactions are settled in the interbank market. And indeed, that the interest rate is controlled. The need for an elastic supply to settle interbank transactions is reflected most transparently in the huge, really huge amounts of intraday credit the central bank supplies to support the operation of real-time gross settlement systems. The need for such an elastic supply to control interest rates is probably less transparent. Now, in the written text, I delve into the mechanisms in some detail, mechanisms that any central banker in charge of operations will be very familiar with, but which are often misunderstood. 
But given time constraints, let me just highlight the key conclusions. Now, the bottom line is that there is no direct link, no direct link between the monetary base, or bank reserves, and interest rates. To ensure that interbank payments settle, either the central bank supplies a bank reserves purely on a demand-determined basis, and this is what happens in corridor systems, or it saturates banks with more than enough reserves, and this is what happens in floor systems. But either way, either way, the interest rate can be set at some level independently of the quantity of bank reserves. Now, by extension, the money multiplier is not a useful concept. So that experiments that trace how an exogenous change in the monetary base leads to changes in the money stock are ill-conceived. Therefore, the ultimate anchor in the monetary system, that is the anchor that constrains credit and money expansion, is not the monetary base, but the interest rate. All this points to the central bank's critical role in the smooth functioning of the payment system, including as overseer. And indeed, historically, the precursors of central banks were arguably the public banks set up in roughly in the 14 and 1600 in order to rationalize and support the operation of payment systems, well before central banks developed their function of lenders of rough resort. Now, more generally, an elastic supply of the means of payment via central bank credit is not just necessary to ensure the smooth running of the payment system and to set interest rates. It is also necessary to underpin the functioning of the financial system more generally. That is, our financial system is credit-hungry. Credit is all around us. It is extended explicitly when banks create deposits or inside money, which is nothing but a form of debt. It is again extended explicitly to avoid the lack of synchronization between two transaction legs, as when one party borrows the necessary funds in order to avoid the lag between receiving a good or financial asset and settlement. And it is extended implicitly whenever the two legs are not synchronized. That is, for instance, when delivery precedes payment. More fundamentally, credit is a way of overcoming barter by transforming a relationship at a point in time into an temporal one. And this was quite common even in less sophisticated economies. Rather than solving the coincidence of once today, one would defer payment until a mutually agreeable means of payment was available. To my mind, this is a much more efficient uh, way of executing transactions than barter. And it is historically, I think, this actually preceded barter. Indeed, on reflection, the distinction between money and debt is overdone. True, a difference is that money extinguishes obligations in its role as an ultimate settlement medium. But netting of contracts is a pretty widespread form of settling transactions. Inside money, the bulk of the means of payment is debt, and even outside money, which is irredeemable, can be regarded as debt. While not subject to legal default, like any form of money, it is subject to a breakdown in trust and confidence. That is, for instance, a flight into another form of money. And this breakdown in trust undermines the role of money as a unit of account and even as a means of payment. For instance, think of dollarization. In fact, one can think of money as an especially trustworthy form of debt. And at an even deeper level, money is debt in the form of an implicit contract between the individual and society. The individual provides something of value to society in return for a token that he or she trusts to be able to use in the future to obtain in turn something of value. That is, he or she has a credit 
vis-à-vis -vis everyone and no one in particular in the community. In other words, they owe a debt to him or her. To me, this also suggests that the role of the state must be critical. The state is the ultimate guarantor of society's implicit contract. All well-functioning currencies, all well-functioning currencies have ultimately been underpinned by a well-functioning state, with the currency area often coinciding with the perimeter of a given political unit. True, it is no secret, of course, that the relationship between the sovereign and the currency has been a checkered one. The sovereign has often yielded to the temptation to abuse its power, undermining the monetary system. But this simply indicates that it is essential to put in place adequate safeguards, and I will return to that in a minute. Now, cryptocurrencies illustrate some of the problems when seeking to generate trust through a fully decentralized system that does not piggyback on existing institutional arrangements. This is so quite apart, quite apart from the issues concerning scalability, finality, and verif verification incentives discussed in the BIS annual economic report. The analysis so far points to another fundamental problem, which is the lack of an elastic supply. It is this lack that explains the extreme volatility of cryptocurrencies, which in turn undermines their role as units of account and as means of payment. Not surprisingly, prices are still quoted and sticky in terms of national currencies. This problem cannot be solved easily. On the one hand, a fully unbacked currency in elastic supply will not succeed in gaining the necessary trust and thus in becoming a unit of account and means of payment. On the other hand, tying it to a domestic currency would either require some agent to arbitrage impossibly unlimited quantities between the two, taking on too much risk, just as central banks do when trying to keep the currency stable, or, or else it will require backing the cryptocurrency with sovereign assets or a means of payment on a demand-determined basis. But this would defeat the very purpose of a cryptocurrency, as it would piggyback on sovereign money. Moreover, like any market market, uh, money market mutual fund, not backed by central bank liquidity and the lender of last resort, it would be subject to runs, not least since in all probability it would not be profitable without taking risk. Now, it is now time to turn to the longer issues concerning the need to generate trust, that is, delivering price and financial stability. And given time constraints, I will only sketch the arguments, which I have developed in detail elsewhere, including in the speech that I gave at Cato some, some time ago. The previous analysis suggests that the concepts of price and financial stability are joined at the hip. As explained, there are simply two ways of ensuring trust in money. When thinking of price stability, trust in its value relative to goods and services. When thinking of, thinking of financial stability, trust in its value as a bank deposit or its close cashing debt, which is impaired by default. And trust in its function as a means of payment, which is equally impaired by bank failures. It is no coincidence that ensuring price and financial stability have been two core central bank functions, with the use of the central bank balance sheet underpinning both in order to support the payment system, to set interest rates, and to perform lender of last resort functions. And sometimes based on central banks' responsibility for banking regulation and supervision. This is so even as the prominence of the two tasks, and indeed their conception, has evolved historically. 
Now, while price and financial stability as concepts are joined at the hip, the processes behind them actually differ. In the case of financial instability, the process depends critically on how elastic credit expansion is over horizons that are longer than those involved in the day-to-day -day operation of the system. As dis discussed in detail elsewhere, the mutually reinforcing interaction between credit, asset prices, and risk-taking gains center stage. This is what gives rise to disruptive booms and busts, or financial cycles, that are the origin of the more serious forms of financial instability. Here, the challenge is to ensure that the system is not excessively elastic, drawing on two monetary system anchors. First, operating on prices, the interest rate, and the central bank's reaction function, which sets the universal price of leverage. And operating on quantities, the regulatory apparatus that sets capital and liquidity standards, which raises the price and constrains the expansion of leverage. Now, importantly, these aspects are often missed in the current vintage of macroeconomic models, which conflate financing and, and, and saving. And maybe we could get back to this in the Q&A. Now, in the case of price instability, the issue looked simple in the old days. And I'm sure I'm not going to make many, uh, many friends here. Um, by that, I mean in the monetarist tradition. An exogenous increase in money would, except in the short run, lead to a proportionate increase in prices or money neutrality. The rhetoric that the price level is the inverse of the price of money has given this view considerable appeal. Nowadays, the discussion, the discussion is not fundamentally different, except that it is couched in terms of the interest rate. But arguably, this literature, old and new, underestimates the role that real factors can play in the inflation-generating process. And there are three analytical reasons for this. First, once it is recognized that money is fundamentally endogenous, experiments that assume an exogenous change and trace its impact are not that meaningful. Second, once it is recognized that the price of money, in terms of the unit of account, is a unity by convention, it makes little sense to think of the price level as being the inverse of the price of money. This conflates the price of money with the value of money. It is just a succinct way of saying what money can buy. But there is there exists nothing special about it. Any financial asset whose value is fixed in nominal terms has the same property. Third, once it is recognized that the monetary anchor is the interest rate, it is harder to argue that monetary policy is neutral, since it is bound to affect different sectors differently, not least through capital accumulation. It is also harder to argue that, at least at low levels of inflation, and let me stress, at least at low levels of inflation, its impact will be on the general price level, and as opposed to mainly on relative prices. As the intuitive story about a uniform impact of an increase in the money stock is less tenable. This, in turn, opens the door for real factors to play a bigger role. I am particularly emphasizing that I'm looking at relatively low inflation levels. But there are also empirical reasons why we may be, our understanding of the role of real factors may be underestimated. And since I have developed them elsewhere, here let me just mention four. First, 
there is growing evidence that globalization and trade integration, and in all probability advances in technology, are important in underestimating the secular downward pressures on inflation over the last 30 years, not least by raising persistently competitive pressures. Remember that China and all of these countries have joined the, the, uh, the global trading system. Second, there is growing evidence that low interest rates can have very long-lasting, if not permanent, effect on, permanent effects on output, not least by misallocating resources. Third, there is growing evidence that monetary regimes, rather than saving and investment drivers, have had a lasting impact on real interest rates. And finally, there is growing evidence that a low, at low interest inflation rates, the pure inflation component, that is the component which is unrelated to relative prices, is generally not much than 10%, between 10 and 20%. Now, the difference between the processes underlying monetary and uh, price and financial stability gives rise to material tensions, at least in the short run. Historically, it has not been unusual for price stability to coexist with financial instability, for instance, under the gold standard, and notably since the 1980s. Indeed, arguably, since the early 1980s, changes in the monetary system notably banking or financial liberalization, and the adoption of monetary regimes focused on near-term inflation and that pay little attention to monetary and credit aggregates, against the backdrop of the persistent downward pressure that globalization has put on inflation, have heightened the near-term tension between the two objectives. In a nutshell, they have increased the amplitude of financial cycles in a context of low, if not declining, and even negative inflation. They have done so by boosting the elasticity of credit and the means of payment while keeping a lid on inflation. Now, while tensions exist in the near term, price and financial stability are more easily reconcilable in the longer term. This is because financial cycles are considerably longer than business cycles, and because financial booms and busts cripple monetary policy and undermine price stability. This requires putting in place appropriate anchors in the monetary system in the two dimensions mentioned above. Interest rate setting, paying attention also to financial stability, and regulatory and regulation and supervision, targeting specifically financial cycles. And this has been done through the so-called macroprudential approach. And all this supported by central bank independence as a safeguard against the abuses of the sovereign. And all this, in turn, must be underpinned by the creditworthiness of the state or of the sovereign, which is the ultimate linchpin of the monetary system. It is sometimes argued that the private sector can achieve the same objectives on its own, with no need of central banks and no need of supervisory authorities. Free banking, for instance, is sometimes recalled with nostalgia. But this conclusion it is at best doubtful, particularly, and I'm really emphasizing this, in modern financial systems. The incentives to take on risk are too powerful because of competitive pressures that are too strong. The role of safety nets, I think, is overestimated because overly rosy perceptions of risk play a key role in amplifying financial booms and then cause the bust. And crises cannot be managed effectively without a lender of last resort because basically that is what history tells us. So let me conclude. The monetary system is the cornerstone of the economy, not an outer facade, but its very foundation. The system hinges on trust. It cannot survive without it, just as we cannot survive 
without the oxygen we breathe. Building trust so that the system can function well is a major challenge. It requires sound and robust institutions. Lasting price and financial stability are the ultimate prize. The two concepts are joined at the hip, but because the underlying processes differ, in practice they have often been more like uncomfortable bedfellows than perfect partners. The history of our monetary system is the history of the quest for that elusive prize. Its journey is a journey with an uncertain destination, not least because it takes time to gain trust, but an instant to lose it and much longer to regain it. The present system has central banks and the regulatory supervisory apparatus at its core. Now, the system is by no means perfect. It can and must be improved. But for instance, cryptocurrencies, with their promise of a fully decentralized trust, are not the answer. Now, paraphrasing Churchill's famous line about democracy, the current monetary system is the worst, except for all those that have been tried from time to time. Thank you very much. I don't know whether any questions or <laughs> yes. Claudio, there's been a lot of uh, recent comments on the two percent inflation target. How do you think that affects the issue of trust over time? Do you have any reaction? <laughs> well, um, I think that um, uh, inflation targeting regimes uh, were very important or helped a lot in bringing inflation down when inflation was very high. Uh, there are questions whether they are, as they are conceived now, uh, the best type of regimes going forward. And I think that one aspect which is, has probably been taken a bit too far is the focus on a particular number, 2%, but it could be 3%, it could be 1%. Uh, I very much like um, Greenspan's definition of price stability, which is when prices don't really enter into your decision-making. And that doesn't mean that it needs to be 2%. It could be lower. It could even, in some cases, be negative for some time. So I think that it would be good if current regimes uh, allowed for greater flexibility in pursuing price stability. Now, going back to what I said, I think that uh, this requires refinements in the current systems. I mean, we could go through the various options, but I think the most important one is to try and have more tolerance for inflation deviations, particularly if they are on the downside. Um, and at the same time, therefore, have a longer horizon that allows you to be, as I said, more tolerant for these deviations. I mean, because as I mentioned, one of, I think one of the problems uh, that uh, we saw since the 1980s is that too much of a focus on, on, on price stability in a, narrow, in a narrow sense has meant that central banks have not been paying enough attention to what happens on the financial side. And I think Volcker would probably agree with this. Um, so that because, precisely because the processes be behind price and financial stability are different, you had many cases in which you had huge expansions in the financial system, huge expansions in credit, in asset prices, uh, supported by high risk taking, but those were not reflected in increases in prices of goods and services. And if you focus exclusively on prices and goods and services, 
Uh, and moreover, if you do not pay attention to credit and monetary aggregates, uh, unwittingly you allow these things to build up. Now, if you had a financial string, uh, regulation and supervision that were sufficiently stringent, uh, you might be able to, still you would have a financial cycle, but the financial cycle might be less uh, damaging. But if you don't have that, and obviously we didn't have that before the great financial crisis, then the consequences can be uh, very serious. And moreover, over time, uh, there is a, a risk that um, you might have to keep or you keep interest rates so low in order to just get a particular number that debt keeps increasing in the system uh, as it has increased since the financial crisis, which means that some of the vulnerabilities that we see were the result of uh, the policies that were pursued in order to engender the recovery. So central banks pulled all, out all the stops in order to avoid the crisis and to avoid this vicious spiral that we know about. Um, and then you know, they took the, uh, the brunt of the burden in order to get the recovery going because other policies were not supportive. And that has meant that the uh, recovery from the crisis has been unbalanced with too much being on the shoulders of the central banks. And that is why we're seeing, it's one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why we see a number of financial vulnerabilities around the world. It's one reason, again, not the only reason, why debt has continued rising. And that, to my mind, raises the risk of a possible debt trap, whereby this downward bias in interest rates and upward bias in debt will make it harder for central banks to, to raise interest rates without causing the damage that they want to avoid in the first place. And that's why I think we need a much more balanced policy mix. With monetary policy, with fiscal policy, and with regulatory policy, somehow trying to work together to deal with this decoupling between inflation and, and financial, financial cycles. Uh, am I supposed to? <laughs> OK, uh, George. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to uh, follow up on that last question by asking you uh, what your thoughts are on proposals for targeting nominal income. And the reason why I think that's a follow-up question is that on those proposals, the inflation rate would be allowed to vary inversely with productivity, for example. And, uh, and uh, there are some arguments that that would, in fact, uh, mean uh, less of a tendency for policy to uh, create asset price movements uh, that are connected with stabilizing the general price yeah. level in times of rapid productivity growth. Mm. Uh, well, I, I know, as you know, <laughs> that you're a big proponent of this. I, I would rather, I can see some merit in the proposal, but I would rather tackle the problem head on. I mean, if, if the problem is this decoupling between prices and, and financial cycles, uh, why don't you just pay a bit more attention to financial cycles directly and have a bit more leeway when you're trying to pursue price stability, which is an overriding concern and an overriding objective. Um, so it seems to me that uh, while there is, again, some merit in that proposal, I would rather tackle the problem directly. 
And in order to, uh, the, this would also indicate that in order, as I mentioned earlier, in order to tackle the problem, you cannot just do it with monetary policy. It's just, it would be too much. You have to have a strong regulatory and, and the supervisory system. And you have to have a fiscal policy that takes these things into account. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I mean, in, you, many of you might know that in the case of Spain and Ireland, uh, two countries that had huge problems because of the booms and busts that they faced, during the expansion, during the financial expansion, when credit was booming, when uh, property prices were booming, people that were looking at the, uh, well, first of all, debt to GDP, government debt to GDP was falling. And people that were looking at trying to measure, uh, you know, uh, cyclically adjusted fiscal positions were saying, well, actually, you have a fiscally adjusted surplus. Okay, so everything is fine. Now, in some work that we did, we showed that if you try to adjust for the financial booms and try to calculate output gaps using financial, uh, financial information, you can get much better real-time estimates of the, if you like, to what extent uh, output is above sustainable, sustainable levels, which would have meant that their fiscal position in real time would have been stronger. Problem is that during financial booms, revenues are uh, artificially and temporarily boosted. You're building up contingent liabilities, and growth, uh, growth is typically uh, sort of under, uh, overestimated. So even in cases like Ireland and Spain, when everything seemed to be going right, when the, uh, when the bus came, they, they had a sovereign crisis. Um, yes. Hi. Um, <clears throat> you suggested a couple of times that lenders of the last resort are important underwriters of financial stability. But don't you worry about moral hazard problems, in particular lenders of last resort encouraging over-leveraging by institutions that figure they'll get Rescue. Yeah, but that's a little bit like saying that if you, I'm going to exaggerate, right? but uh, that having fire, firefighters uh, is a problem because it encourages people to be more careless about uh, fire prevention tools. I think that a lender of last resort is absolutely necessary in order to deal with crises when crises arise. But I, I wouldn't dispute that there is a bit of a, an impact on, on uh, s some moral hazard elements to that. I mean, who could dispute that? That's why you also have regulation and supervision to, to deal with it. But more fundamentally, more fundamentally, I, having seen how things operate in financial markets for many, many years, having seen how banks operate, I think that the, there are incentive and there are risk measurement, more importantly, there are risk measurement problems that are very difficult to overcome and that lie at the basis of some of the crises, or most of the serious crises that we see. So it's not just so much a matter of incentives, and indeed there are incentive problems too, but I, even those incentive problems I don't think are so closely related to, a moral, to the safety net as are related to competition and the like. I mean, you see these things also in uh, corporate bond markets where spreads become extremely tight, where you don't have a safety net, and where spreads become extremely tight during expansions. So that I tend to think of those very, very narrow spreads not as a sign of low risk, but as a sign of high risk taking. Uh, I, I think I come to you. Uh, yes. Uh, 
Bert Ely, a, a banking consultant. Uh, a question for you with regard to uh, low long-term interest rates. What concerns do you have about the continuation of those very low rates and their impact on uh, certain types of financial intermediaries that heavily invest uh, in long-term securities? And I'm thinking specifically of life insurance companies and pension funds. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that <clears throat> there are a number of side effects of very low and protracted, uh, low rates for long. And I have to say that central banks are, are aware of this. The question is how you trade off different things. But let me just mention a few. One is the one you mentioned, is that institutions that have liabilities that have a longer duration than their assets, over time they become, they really have uh, solvency problems. They could have solvency problems. But even for the banks, uh, particularly those that rely heavily on retail deposits, uh, low rates for long tend to um, sort of cut on their net interest margins. Um, and indeed, we have done work uh, at the BIS, empirical work, that confirms that. And not just our work, but the work of others does it. I remember that a, a central, I know a central bank, a banker in Japan used to tell me, well, you know, very, very low interest rates for very long they are, you know, they are the equivalent of a slow death for banks. Now, that, I think that's excessive, but clearly some of the problems that banks face in, in Japan is the result of that. And quite apart from the problems of the side effects that you might have for financial institutions, there are side effects for the system as a whole. Particularly, they do tend to encourage restaking, and some of that restaking may be good, but some of that restaking could go too far. And in some work that we have done at the BIS, we have also found... And some, to me, to some extent, surprisingly, that uh, low interest rates or very low interest rates and declining interest rates go hand in hand with an increase in the proportion of quote unquote um, zombie firms. Um, that is, firms that uh, cannot really pay uh, their interest payments uh, through their profits. Um, even if you take, account, take out the Amazons and whatever of these worlds, of course, should not be there. Um, so there are, so that misallocates resources um, and over time may actually reduce um, uh, also uh, productivity. Now, these, as I said, these side effects are relatively well, I, actually, I would say by now are well known. Maybe in the old days, uh, you know, when the crisis erupted, there was this idea that very, very low rates uh, were a free lunch, and maybe some people still think that. But most policymakers that I talk to realize that the side effects are there. The only question is a question of judgment, you know, how serious they are and how to trade them off with other objectives. <laughs> I, 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 just the last... Uh, okay, so I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> I would have loved to continue right now. <laughs>